is increasingly tending towards just individualism everywhere there is. And I want to give you two illustrations. Um, I was looking and laughing to myself, my illustrations, almost all of my illustrations this morning are sports illustrations. Um, I don't know if it's the Olympics right now or basketball or football, whatever it is. So if you're not into sports, um, sorry, we'll do different illustrations another time. Um, but this, this Sunday, at least it's kind of sports Sunday, the illustrations go. And so um, I want you to think for a moment about um, how many of you participate in, um, in fantasy sports. If you're unfamiliar with fantasy sports like fantasy football, um, what that is is um, you have a team, but your team is individual players that play for a broad amount of teams. And so you might have a quarterback from the Eagles. You might have a running back from the Redskins. You might have a kicker from the Steelers. And they all come together, and every Sunday they earn a certain amount of points and earn you um, a certain amount of points. This is a relatively new thing. Um, I'm particularly bad at it, as you can talk to people who have been in fantasy sports leagues um, with me. But what it tends to do is whenever we turn on sports, we no longer see the teams anymore. We look at individuals. And so it's who are the superstars that play for that team, not as who the team as a whole. And usually we don't even consider the team as a whole until we get to the end of the season when all of that's done and we start looking at things like the Super Bowl and what is this team and what is that team. And so you see this tend towards individualism. Who's the celebrity? Who's the superstar? Um, this is the one time that I get to use this illustration. Um, also, I'm a Virginia basketball fan, along with some of you um, realize. And it's unique that the Virginia basketball team is one of four teams ever in the history of college basketball that have gone from unranked to the number one team um, in the country in the course of the season. And there's been questions on how and why that happened, and it's the same principle that in the preseason when people were judging what makes a great team, they'd look at a team and say, who's the superstar? Who's the celebrity? Who's the Trey Young that's going to throw up 40 points every week? And so when you look at a team like Virginia that works together as a team in offense and defense, they don't look like they're going to be very good in the preseason. Again, a, a trend towards individualism. Now, like I said, lots of sports illustrations, but we could look across every area from vocation to clubs to youth sports, wherever we are, and you can see this trend towards everyone trying to figure out, how am I going to be the superstar? How am I going to be the celebrity? And, and no matter what group it is. And so maybe you don't feel very good in your job, but you're a part of a civil group, civic group, and you can be the celebrity. You can be the superstar in that. And everybody feels the weight and expectation. I have to be excellent. I have to be superb at something. The difficulty when we approach the church is that God has not designed you that way. The beauty of the Christian gospel is that it frees us from celebrity thinking because the superstar and the celebrity has already come, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's first place in everything, in every area. He gets preeminence above everything else. And so when we come together, it isn't about us saying, who's the celebrity or who's the superstar? He's, he's already come. He's the one that we worship. And so God has put us together into this body, literally this body, as you'll see this morning, this church family, a place where we can find life and significance and encouragement and fruitfulness and help and growth without having to jockey with one another about who the superstar is going to be, who the celebrity is going to be. There is great freedom and being part of an organization that functions that way. And that type of organization is wholly unique 
not just as we've looked at when you look at sports or when you look at other difference of organizations. And so this morning we're looking at what goes wrong when a church starts to develop this superstar celebrity individualism and we're looking at it in the context of a human body and Paul's going to compare the church and especially a local church, our church, to a body and how a body functions together. And what he's going to say in this passage is that two different statements become common when the church starts to become unhealthy. And by listening for those statements, either we're saying those statements or we hear someone in the church saying those statements, we can start to diagnose a lack of health in our own church. And so what I want you to do is we learn these statements and start to ask yourself, are these things that I've said or things that I think, are these things that I'm seeing in my community group or in my church as a whole? Because we want to make sure we avoid the kind of individualism that leads to disease and death in the body of the local church. So that's what we're looking at this morning. I'll read to us from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 down through verse um, 31. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Because this is the word of our God, let's pray this morning before we consider it. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word that not only instructs us as individuals, but helps us to understand how we can grow together as a church. And so I give you thanks this morning for this local church, Christ Covenant, and for this word that instructs us in how we would grow in love and faithfulness to you and to one another. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. So as we come to this passage again, we're, we're looking for those two statements to make sure we don't find them on our own lips or on the lips of others. Uh, we find the first statement in verse 15, 
where Paul is again using the analogy of the body and he says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. And then in 16, he uses another body part. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. And so the first statement is the statement where one member says to the whole or to another member, I don't belong in this church and particularly in this context because I lack a certain spiritual gift or because my spiritual gift is less than others. Now, it's important to note that it isn't just about spiritual gifts, that it is detrimental to a church whenever any single or group of members say, I don't belong because. You've already seen in the first few verses that fall before the verses that I just read that Paul has said, we belong because we have been redeemed by the common sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' blood that atoned for your sins is just as powerful as the blood that atoned from him to the other people in the church. And so our equality and the redemption we've received from Jesus and the same Holy Spirit means what makes us belong in the church is that we have a common Savior and a common Spirit. And so we have to be careful whenever we start to feel like I don't belong because. I feel like different people in my church or a higher maturity level. I, I feel like they know their Bible more. I, I feel like they have a different spiritual gift, and so I feel like I don't belong. Now, the danger and being able to see this in yourself and in other people is that the sin behind this is self-pity. It's really difficult to talk to someone about the sin of self-pity because the sin of self-pity takes the role of victim and as deficient. And so if someone comes and says, I think you're struggling with the, struggling with the sin of self-pity, or if somebody comes to you and says, I, I, I think what you're talking about right now is self-pity, you have a, a habit of responding the same way with more self-pity, saying, you know, I know, I'm just the most horriblest person ever. I mean, I struggle with self-pity all the time. And so you actually haven't heard what's happening, and you haven't been able to see that self-pity is sin. Self-pity is unbelief. Self-pity says, God has made me deficient. Self-pity says, God has made me less valuable. Self-pity says, God doesn't care for me like he cares for other people. Self-pity says, God has allowed this suffering to go on my life because his hand has slipped from the wheel or I haven't done enough for him. Self-pity is fundamentally an accusation about God's love towards you that tricks you into robbing the congregation of your love and participation and robbing other people from the joy of loving you and investing and your life, but it starts first and more foremost with a misunderstanding about God. And so if you're someone who struggles with self-pity, if you find yourself a lot saying, I just don't belong, I'm not good enough, everybody else is better than I am, woe is me, you need to first of all take the position not a victim, but a sinner, and be able to see what you're doing is you are mischaracterizing God and his love, who loves you, who has saved you who delights in you 
as an equal son or daughter that has been adopted into his family with the same redeeming blood that every other person has, has made you who you are and given you the gifts to who you are to serve in a congregation in a unique way, not so that you would mopily go through your service saying, woe is me, I'm not as good as others, but that you would rejoice in who God is to you and his love towards you. And so if you're someone who struggles with self-pity, instead of saying, oh, Joe's so mean to point that out, First, you need to hear me say, it is sin that is hollowing you out. You can repent for self-pity. Self-pity is fundamentally looking at yourself, and instead of seeing yourself as weak and unbelieving, I mean, weak is seeing yourself as succumbing to unbelief. So it isn't, I'm weak, woe is me. It's that I'm not believing what's true about God. God, I'm sorry. Help me to believe the truth about what you've done for me. Now, If you're falling into self-pity, the way you know it is you start to talk about that you don't belong. It's one of Satan's favorite lies that he loves for God's people to say. Satan loves isolating Christians. And he will do whatever it takes to isolate Christians. And so whenever you're believing something that leads you to make the determination that you need to be less a part of a church, less in the lives of others, pursue less friendship with other Christians, that you don't belong, that you should just go off and be by yourself, you can be sure that Satan's at work. And here Paul's bringing in the illustration of the body and how the body works. And he wants you not only to see that if you succumb to the sin of self-pity, that it's going to rob you in your relationship with God, but it's going to rob you in your relationship with the congregation. And so he gives the illustration of a, of a body being entirely an eye or being entirely an ear. And I, I want you for a minute to consider just the, the gruesome horror of that. You know, much less imagining like a body of composed solely of eyeballs trying to do something. You know, yesterday I was, was painting and fixing drywall in my basement. You know, an, an unnamed child found the sweet spot between you know, the, 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 um, the two by fours and the drywall. And if you get the right spot and you press hard enough, you can just go right through the drywall. And so we found the sweet spot. I was fixing it. Um, you know, had the, the paint and the mud and all the different things that I had. Now, you know, I, I was having to incorporate a lot of different aspects of my body to do that. My brain, my eyes, my hands didn't even do a great job even though I was incorporating all those aspects. But, you know, imagine this monstrosity of a collection of eyeballs trying to repair drywall. Like eyeballs trying to grab a putty, grasp a putty knife. Like eyeballs trying to pull... You're thinking, that's kind of gross and weird and I don't quite even know how to imagine that. That's the point. If if you're succumbing to self-pity and you're saying, I don't belong as a part of this congregation, what you're saying is the congregation would be better as a collection of eyeballs or a collection of ears. You see, the, the, the beauty of the body is that it's only beautiful when it's all together. Even though you can look at the value of each component part, if you have a component part by itself, it, it moves from beauty to almost horror. I mean, you, you look at a skeleton, and a skeleton is an amazing thing. I mean, the, the system that holds our bodies together, again, gruesomeness, without a skeleton, we would be a, a mush of, like, fleshly putty on the ground. Like, just kind of gross. But if you look at a skeleton by itself, it's a Halloweenish kind of scary thing. But when you look at it in the composed of the body, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. 
And so one of the dangers is if you're succumbing to self-pity and saying, I don't belong a part of Christ's covenant. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to participate in a community group. I'm not going to figure out how the ways that God's gifted me. I can serve here and serve in the mission that God's called us to. What you're doing is you're pushing the church as a whole to look like some kind of horror movie, a collection of walking eyeballs or ears. We're finding this true even as we look at the way that scientists are understanding the human body. So there's an area of study called embodied cognition. And you probably don't know anything about embodied cognition, but it probably have caught a fly ball before. And so if you're sitting in the outfield, ball goes from pitcher, the batter hits it, ball goes up in the air. Think for a moment about what you think goes on in your body. What we used to think was this maximal processing unit called our brain is looking and trying to figure out velocity and angle and inertia, and the brain is then communicating to the other parts once it's figured out all of the different calculations. You know, body is moving at this speed, at this angle, at this height, and so feet, you need to go over to that spot over there, when actually what we're finding out is that the brain talks to the eyeballs and asks the eyeballs, hey, what are you seeing? And the brain actually says to the eyeballs, what I want you to do is I want you to move in such a way that the ball stays the same size. And so the feet start working with the eyeballs, and the eyeballs are the ones that are trying to make sure just that the ball stays the same size. There isn't this massive amount of mathematical computations that are going on in the brain that everything else is just following orders that the whole body is working together to do a common task like catching a baseball. And we're seeing as we develop medically in our understanding of the body how applicable things like Paul's illustration of the body as a whole. So it isn't one member is doing all the calculations and then giving orders to everyone. The body as a whole is working together every part, you doing what you need to in a congregation, everybody else doing what they need to do in a congregation, and that you're needed. And so if you succumb to self-pity, you're taking away an important part of this body and this congregation and robbing yourself of being invested with the others. And so, you know, lastly on this first point, it illustrates what we see as the Pareto principle, um, that typically 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. So what happens is you find a group of people who are committed in a church, are willing to do what it takes to have a church happen, and then you have other people, for whatever reason, deciding that they're not going to be involved. And so 80% of the work gets put on 20% of the people, and those 20% of the people end up moving towards burnout. They're faithful, they're loyal, they want to do what it takes, and other people, for whatever reason, maybe self-pity, all of a sudden allow that to happen rather than everybody coming in and doing what God has designed us to do as members. And so the question in this first statement is, do you ever find that on your lips? I don't belong because. I'm not going to participate because. I'm not going to be involved because. I'm not going to give sacrificially because. Typically behind that is self-pity, and self-pity is always sin, and it always gets back to a misunderstanding of how much God loves you and what God has done for you. God does not redeem JV Christians. God does not redeem things to be kind of used and thrown away. God redeems and purchases sons and daughters of equal and amazing and ultimate value. And so be careful about falling prey to self-pity. 
confess it to the Lord God and repent of it so that you're not robbed of being able to participate in a church family. Second statement that, um, that he says, you'll notice in verse 21 and 22. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So again, if the first statement is, I don't belong, the second statement says, I don't need anyone else. The first statement is self-pity. The second statement is pride. And just like self-pity, underneath self-pity is unbelief, so underneath pride is unbelief. And so if we think together, what does the prideful person misunderstand about God? The prideful person starts to believe that what God has done is given them a little bit of help and then expected them to excel and exceed and to strive on their own. That somehow God has contributed a little bit to their salvation or even a little bit to their fruitfulness. And after that, it's up to them. And you know what? They're doing pretty good. Thank you very much that God's given me a boost. But I've really taken what God's given me and deployed that in my life. And so I've really added to grace. I've really improved upon God's grace. And so look at the good things that I've done. In fact, I'm getting so good, I'm not sure I need some of these other people in my church. I'm not sure I need some of these other expressions of Christian spiritual gifts. I think I'm becoming the uber-Christian. The Christian that is completely whole in and of himself. Right here, in my hyperbolic over-exaggeration, that, that is a nasty lie about God. God gives you boundless grace. God pours mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And if there is anything good you have, are, or will ever do, it's because God, by his grace, is holding you back from sin and that he is enabling you and equipping you through his word and spirit to live for him. And not only that, God's purpose, and this is the second lie that prideful people believe, God's purpose for you is not to grow you in self-sufficiency or independence. God's purpose is to grow you in God-dependence that in a large part in this life will be displayed through your need of a local church. Let me say that again. God's goal is to grow you in a God-dependence that will be expressed in this life primarily through your need to be a part of a local church. God has made it so that your weakness and need for him and his grace will be most clearly perceived as you participate in a church family. And so if you pridefully start to think, I'm doing fine, I don't need a church, God's given me a good you know, help in the right direction, and I've really excelled beyond that, I think I'm doing pretty good, I don't need the rest of you. You are lying about God and about his purposes. Remember Paul and Paul's great understanding about pride. He was struggling with a thorn in his side. We don't know what that sin was. And he really wanted to excel past that sin, praying to God, take it away, take it away, take it away. And Paul relays that he learned something about God that he had misunderstood. That God came and said, you know what? 
the reason that you have this, the reason that, you're, the reason that I'm keeping you dependent, it is because my grace is sufficient for you. My power, God power, Christ power, is made perfect in weakness, not in personal strength. The worst thing that God could do would be to remove his grace and see how you would do on your own. The worst thing God could do would be to pave a way for you to cultivate a life of strength apart from the Lord God. It is his love that binds you to himself. We, we long for dependence. And so pride helps or robs us of the joy of knowing who God is and how he's wired us. And also robs us of our participation in a local church. And so whenever we hear ourselves saying, I don't need someone else, I don't need to be in community, I don't need to participate in a church, I don't need to find where I need to help, I don't need to give, you can be sure that pride is at work. Now, using some of the illustrations that Paul gives, what does that look like? And here he's talking about the fact that there are people in a church and there are spiritual gifts that are less forward than others. I'm doing one of the more forward forward ones right now, the guy up front who's teaching God's word, but this spiritual gift of preaching and teaching is no different than the other ones, and Paul tries to highlight that by using the body, and um, I won't get into graphic detail because he doesn't for a reason, but he says there are parts of our body that require more modesty and that we particularly cover, but it doesn't make them any less important, and so, you know, he's particularly talking about the you know, the ways that our bodies reproduce or the ways that our bodies um, clear our bodies from impurity, um, the parts of the body that are involved in that are naturally covered. And that, that's exactly what he's saying. Is you're like, oh, it's a little uncomfortable. That's the point. But those systems of the body are necessary for you to be a functioning human. They're covered. We don't talk about them. We're awkward when they come up. But they're necessary for where we are. And so if, if you don't have a spiritual gift or God hasn't wired you to be more upfront or to get the kind of um, talk or feedback that some of the more outward gifts give, it doesn't mean that you're any less important. But more importantly for this thing, it doesn't mean that you can look at others and say because they don't have your gift, they might have a more hidden gift that they're less important or that you don't need them in the body of Christ. To give you another illustration... Um, you know, the MVP of 2018 Super Bowl was Nick Foles. You can imagine if they had that ceremony at the end, streamers are coming down, we're going to announce the MVP, and the MVP of the, the 2018 Super Bowl is Nick Foles' arm. Like, no, no, he's like, of course, I mean, this threw all the touchdowns, this arm did all the work, I mean, this arm is the MVP of the Super Bowl. Like, that sounds it's not like an arm. Or what if we said, and, and, and counter-distinction to that, if said the MVP of the 2018 Super Bowl is Nick Foles' pancreas. Be like, ah, that's a little weird too. And what if the pancreas said, yeah, you know, I mean, if I wasn't regulating insulin during that kind of athletic endeavor, like he would have just fallen out. I mean, without me and without a pancreas, like this Super Bowl would not have been possible. So again, you, you, you might have thought about his arm, and that kind of makes sense. Pancreas is a little weird. But without his pancreas, like, it, it would have never happened. He, he couldn't have competed. That's Paul's point. Like, it, it doesn't mean that every gift is going to look the same in how it's represented in a congregation. But everybody's important. You're important. 
and everybody's important to you. And so it's important that we are functioning together with one another, that we're not believing the lies, either of self-pity or pride, that fundamentally are misunderstanding God, and then we're living together in this church family that God's given us. And so he says, lastly, so that we'd be able to protect one another, be able to build one another up. If one member suffers, all suffer together. You can imagine a basketball game a few weeks ago, um, one of the players um, had a compound fracture. You know, don't look it up, just nasty, gross injury, compound fracture of his forearm, um, just horrific, um, horrific injury. You can imagine if all of a sudden you had a compound fracture, um, the kind of things that you would do. You, know, you fell afterwards, hope you don't, you know, fall and break your arm doing you know, breakdown. You know, your other hand might grab your arm. I'm guessing that your, your voice is going to cry out. You know, from what I understand, your body's going to reduce blood flow to produce blood loss. Your heart's going to start pumping faster. Your mind's going to start thinking, what do I do next? Your feet are going to start moving you to a place of protection and of help. You know, all of the different systems of your body are going to be working together to help protect, heal, get help for this injury that you've endured. Now, imagine all of a sudden if afterwards somebody endures a compound fracture and is just kind of walking around. And you look down, like, you know, bone, like, sticking out nasty from their arm, like, blood coming down, and they're just kind of walking around, doing their thing. And, hey, uh, your, your, your arm's broken. Oh, my goodness. It, not only would that be weird, something would be wrong with their body. And not just the part that has the bone sticking out, but the other parts that aren't helping protect it. You know, a, a body that doesn't protect itself during injury is a body that's dead or paralyzed. And so when pride or self-pity are operative in a congregation, even around the issues of spiritual gifts, as Paul's talking about here, we endure hardship or others endure hardship. What happens is the body doesn't care because people either said, I don't need you or I don't belong. And the congregation is unable to care for itself and a church family can become like someone walking around with a compound fracture, just not doing anything. And Paul doesn't want that for his um, faith family. In the same way you see the the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule, the same thing happens under the the pride issue. If a few people say, stand back, I've got this, I have the best spiritual gift, I will do everything necessary for this church to excel, then it leads to an equal amount of dysfunction in a church. So it's not just people saying, I'm not going to help, it's people overhelping. And saying, I, I can do everything in the church. You know, it, it isn't elders, it isn't deacons. It can't do, that's the point, can't do everything in a church. We, we need one another functioning together. And so that the whole point of this passage is getting you to think through which statement are you mo- more prone to. Now, there is kind of a seesaw effect when you have pride and self-pity. Um, I see it at work in my own life. So if I see myself being, you know, prideful and you know, thinking that I'm something that I'm not, and I've departed from God's grace, and all of a sudden, you know, I get called in my pride, or realize my, my pride, and what's at work, a lot of times I'll swing back over and say, whoa, it's me, I'm just the most prideful person ever, and I haven't really decided to walk in the way of grace, I've just traded pride for self-pity. But for most of you, for most of us, we tend towards one or the other. And maybe that statement would be helpful for you to figuring out, are you more prone to say, I don't need others, I can do it by myself. 
Or are you more prone to say, I don't belong? And what that tells you is not just where your church family is suffering, but it tells you where you're misunderstanding God's love for you and what he's done for you. At the heart of self-pity and pride is not just that a congregation would function well as a local church, that they'd be able to express um, spiritual gifts, but that you would realize that you are prone to unbelief. And so what it looks like for you is figure out which one you're most prone to and start speaking to yourself the truths and promises of God. If you start to think, I don't belong, speak to yourself the truth. You belong not because you have certain skills or gifts or experiences. You belong because Jesus has suffered and died, forgiven you your sins, redeemed you, and adopted you into this faith family. Nothing makes someone belong in a Christian church other than the fact that they have been saved by God and as a recognition of that, that salvation are repenting of their sins and believing in Jesus. That's it. Not your skin color, not your money, not your profession, not your spiritual gift, not whether you lift chairs or you preach sermons. None of those things make you belong any more or any less. What makes you belong is Jesus. And so if you have a belonging issue, realize that you already belong through what Christ has done for you. If you have a pride issue, preach yourself the truth that all that you are is the grace of Jesus. And that pride is only as good as your next performance. Pride seems like it's good when you're being prideful, like I'm somebody, but it is fragile. It's only as good as your next performance. And whatever your performance is, whether you think you're just the greatest, awesomest mom ever, and your pride is in mom, like it's only as good as your next meal. It's only as good as your next discipline of your kids. If you think you're the bestest office guy and you're just rocking as a husband or you know, your vacation is just kicking along and it's great, it's only as good as your next performance review. And the beauty of the grace of Jesus is Jesus says the pressure's off. You are good and significant because I have loved you and I have saved you and I have propelled you into service in my kingdom, not in order to earn and boast yourself, but that you might boast in what I've done. And the beauty is when we are fighting pride and self-pity in our own lives, it makes our church as a whole grow more healthy. It makes this to be an organization where we can live and grow and we can fight against our rampant individualism and we can find a place where we can say Jesus is famous above all. He's the celebrity. He's the superstar. And the reason we have any giftedness, spiritual gift, story, experience, skill, any of it, is that we would represent and that we would love and proclaim the name of the only one who is due all praise and all worship, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what a church is. A church says to you, come and grow in grace. If you refuse, refuse to grow in grace, you can't grow here. You won't grow here. And so as we look at ourselves, um, my vision for our church is that we would continue to grow well together. Not that we would have the most awesomest, greatest people who are up front and do upfront things. That's not it at all. In fact, that could lead to the destruction of our church if you think the upfront things are the most important things about our church. The most important things about our church is that each member is resting in the grace of God, thankful for the gifts that He's given us, bringing them to bear in church family, loving and serving your brothers and sisters in Christ and the way that God has made you to do it knowing that that's your job and that's your purpose and that you have belonging and that you're free from boasting.
That's a beautiful faith family. There's no other organization like that in the world. And that's why God has made this thing called the church to be that institution that lasts forever. And it's the institution we have the privilege of being a part of right now. So why don't I close this in prayer and uh, we can pray at that end. Father, we love you. We long to be that